Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay, good evening. Uh, Tonight we're going to start on time. There's a fair amount of uh, things to do over here. And uh, obviously, if you're here, you know that this is the fourth lecture of the six-part series. And tonight's called The Adventures, The Adventure of Jewish Books in the Renaissance, The Impact of New Technologies on the Study of the Torah in the 15th and 16th Century. That's a winner title, you know. You know. The uh, 15th century is where we left off last time, 1400, end of the Middle Ages. And I tried to show, best they could, how in second half of the Middle Ages, Things go south for the Jews, isn't that right? It's not a good time. First half of the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church and the European kingdoms have bigger fish to fry. By the second half of the Middle Ages, they've already consolidated their political situation. They've consolidated uh, the Roman Catholicism as the monolithic religion of Europe, and it was. And, uh, you know, there are no dissenters. And then they have uh, time to say, uh, and, and who are those among us that are not like us? And that's not good for the Jews. So, really, when you get to the 1400s, it's the disappearing Jew, uh, slowly but surely being pushed out of Europe, uh, kicked out of England in 1290, in France, in the course of the 1300s, you know, early and late, by the end of the 1300s, Jews kicked out of France. Um, you and I know that they're going to get kicked out of Spain and Portugal in 1492, 1497, uh, wherever the Spanish conquer, which is half of Italy, they're going to kick you out of there. Um, the Jews are kicked earlier out of Switzerland out of the Netherlands. I believe they're not allowed into Scandinavia even in the first place. They're not allowed into Russia even in the first place. Jews are expelled at one time or another in Hungary. It's a, it's a sad tale. And when you get to Central Europe, which is Germany, or at those times it wasn't called Germany, it was called the Holy Roman Empire, with a lot of different German states. If you just follow it through the sad tale, you'll find that each Medina, <laughs> each little territory within Germany, at one time or another, over the course of the 12, 13, and 1400s, expels the Jews. In fact, they even used to pay the emperor for the right of non-tolerandum judiorum, which is the right not to tolerate the presence of Jews. So, you know, Bavaria, well, not Bavaria, but uh, Brandenburg and Saxony and this group and that group, it it is what it is. So that by the time you get to the end of the 1400s, in the first decade of the 1500s, the Jews are expelled from 97% of Germany. Okay? Um, So it gives you an idea of a trend, which is the Jews have been kicked the heck out of Europe. And uh, the Sephardim, as we all know, for the most part, go to the Middle East and places like that, North Africa. Um, the Ashkenazim, for the most part, go in this very unusual uh, circumstances that we've discussed before, farther into Eastern Europe in something called the Kingdom of Poland, where there's a different set of rules, even though it's a staunchly Catholic country. But there are no Jews, or almost no Jews, in the other parts of Europe. Um, this is matched by uh, the fact that uh, it's not a great time for be Jewish in Europe, and therefore it's not a great time to have a Jewish book there. On the other hand, the decrees of the popes going back in the 1200s to burn the books was uh, somewhat forgotten, but the law was on the books. Uh, meaning, in the killings and the expulsions that took place, people didn't pay attention to the fact that, oh, back in the 1240s, 1250s, the pope gave orders to round up the books and burn them. 
That's not where people were thinking. They were thinking in bigger terms. Let's get the Jews all together out of here. Or let's have a pogrom or something like that. And therefore, the specific issue that we're addressing, which is what's the fate of the Jewish texts, especially when it's still in manuscript state, is somewhat in abeyance. Um, I might say, for obvious reasons, since it's so tough to be Jewish, in second and middle ages, the Jews start self-censoring a lot of things, and rightly so. You know, certain things better not to write in the book. You see? And uh, this is uh, the situation. Sometimes not. Sometimes they have big mouth and they put in things that are not politic to say. And life is strange in that particular way. And then comes the middle of the 1400s. And that's where our story picks up today. Because, of course, in the 1450s comes uh, Gutenberg. As we all know, he's not, it's not a rabbi. <laughs> he says, Johann Gutenberg with his a radical new invention called printing press, which really uh, has been around so long that we don't recognize that it's as revolutionary and perhaps more so, more so than the computer today, at that time. You understand what I'm talking about? The manuscript culture, which had been around forever, which is always so fragile, okay? uh, which is so a subject to what we call toe sofa mistakes, which always happen. Uh, let me ask you a question. When you write something on your word processor computer, you don't go back and correct it? Of course we do. And so when you have manuscripts, they're not full of mistakes. Of course they're, as, as human being. You see? And so to change that into something different, that at least if you get the first edition right, I'm not saying you do, but if you get the first edition right, if you're accurate about it, then it'll constantly reprint. the same. That's a new level of accuracy. It's a new level of technology which is transformative. Jews are inevitably going to be attracted to new technologies because the Jews are usually frozen out of the old money economy. In those days, for example, most of the real money was in owning land and having peasants on due and paying your rents. Jews can't own a land. Uh, old money in those days had to do with certain types of professions that Jews were not permitted to uh, participate in. Uh, many countries... The merchants organize themselves, and I don't blame them, into guilds and unions, and no Jews. And why should they win the competition? And so, by definition, Jews are forced by economic necessity, uh, then as today, then more so, to find some new area somebody hasn't invaded yet. A new branch of the economy, which is a result of new technology. And maybe we can get a foothold in that. In the 15th century, the revolutionary new technology, printing press. It wasn't yet the railroad. Obviously, it wasn't the automobile and the, and the computer. It's the printing press, right? which is radical. There's another area of technology, by the way, which is cannons and guns. Uh, Jews, believe it or not, did get in that also, but that's not for us to talk about tonight. Um, and so uh, the Jews are going to have to, uh, or won't be surprising if they are, drawn to the world of printing, the world of books, uh, see, you can make some money that way. I'm not only talking about Jewish books, maybe non-Jewish books. Eh, it, it's a possibility for a Parnosa, as they say. Um, one of the big stories we're going to have is in Italy. Uh, many of you know, some of you were with me, uh, I guess in May, when we went on our recent uh, tour of Italy. Um, if you know anything at all about the Jews, the history of Jews in Italy, uh, radical economic marginalization. The Jews are allowed in to the Italian states in the 13, 14, 1500s from Chutz Laaretz to be loan bankers, no, to run small mortgages, like we would say today, small mortgages. 
because the big merchants, they want to pachke around with small, petty cash. They'd rather invest in some serious money with a serious return. But somebody's got to handle the necessity of life for the average Joe out there or the average Luigi to make small loans. What we would say today, you know, what we would say a small mortgage or something like that. You're not going to go to the merchant princes or the wealthy middle class for that. So they bring in the Jew. My point being that the Jew is not permitted to participate in the regular economy. He's assigned a certain niche. And the Jews are so economically desperate throughout their history and throughout the Middle Ages particularly, they'll take whatever they can get. And so if they always have what they call a kondota, which is a contract between a city-state and a couple of Jews, one or two or maybe a few more. And so if you go to Italy, you come to town after town, which in those days was an independent city-state, a republic of its own. The Republic of Siena, the Republic of Pisa, the Republic of uh, Florence, uh, obviously Venice, and many other places like that, small places which were independent city-states. And the city will cut a deal with, specifically, with, you know, with, with highly specified terms that the Jew's going to be the small mortgage guy over here, subject to these and these conditions and such and such taxes and all the rest of it. And if you're talking about an era where the Jews are so radically uh, marginalized in the economic fashion, so uh, what about the new printing press? What about that? Now, the two places where printing happens in Jewish history, in the 1400s, 1500s, or in the period we're talking about at least, uh, you know, from 1450, let's say, when the printing press started, to 1550, is uh, Iberia, Spain, and uh, Italy. That, that's where it happens. Uh, believe it or not, these were two countries which in the 1400s were in the front cutting edge of technology. Now later, excuse me, they fell behind to countries in the north of Europe, like England and North Germany and places like that. I understand that. Holland. But I'm talking about in those days. And um, the Jews were no small part of that. But it's hard to imagine. Spain, once upon a time, was an ultra-modern country by the technological standards of the 15th century. Um, the Jews in Spain... Um, underwent in the 15th century a kind of a frum renaissance of their own, a Jewish renaissance, because um, maybe some of you were with us when we covered it Spain a couple years ago in a summer lecture series, but uh, the Jews in Spain in 1391 underwent a huge wave of pogroms spontaneously arising from the population in Spain all across the peninsula, and a lot of Jews were killed, and 50% of the Jews were compelled to convert so uh, one reason or another. That's a lot of people. There's a lot to talk about over there, but let's just leave it at that. And the Jews took a heavy, you know, blows in the years 1391 to, say, 1421. For 20, 30 years, it was really bad to be Jewish in Spain. And then, as happens, Bayakam el Chadash, new kings arose in Castile and Aragon, and conditions changed and got a little bit better for the Jews. And what they had to do was sort of pick up the pieces and try to reconstruct Jewish life um, to do what they could to try to regain what they had once had in terms of the great and glorious Sephardic Jewish culture that had uh, prospered in the Iberian Peninsula. And they did it. That's the funny part. And so you're talking about a period of 70 years from, let's say, 1421 to 1492, when we know they're all kicked out. The Jews in Spain, uh, very interestingly, uh, it's, it's... a, a uh, cautionary tale for us today, an exemplary tale, they uh, get together in Valladolid and they uh, pass resolutions which, which based by, let's use our standards today, 80% of communal funds will go for education, for schooling, right? The old age homes, the hospitals will have to make on their own. 
we'll have to manage on their own. The, the money is going to be, uh, the, it's called the Takonos of Valladolid. The money will be put into education, to schooling. It's really interesting. And they had payros as a result of this. And in the 15th century, there's a revival of Jewish culture and Jewish learning. The famous name associated with that at that time was Revitsa Kampanton, but there, you know, I won't go into all that. Um, yeshivas start up as of new. Schooling starts up as of new. Uh, Jewish culture gets very strong again. Um, the Sephardim get back their sense of cultural superiority. And uh, therefore, don't be surprised. That here, here you have the three kingdoms of Spain, by the way. There was no country of Spain. There was Castile and Aragon. That's the most of the country. This was still Muslim. And uh, here and here where most of the Jews live. And in both of these areas have been all these pogroms. And they make a comeback. Uh, the person I'm talking about, the others, they're over here. Um, Names that most of us are not familiar with. Yitzhak Abu Hab, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of the fact these are not household names. But they were once upon a time, and they even revived their own system of pilpul and lundus and all that sort of thing. And therefore, don't be surprised if in a place like Spain, uh, it's late in the day, because you and I know the end of the story. They're going to get kicked out in 1492, but they don't know that. So already, if in 1453, a guy named Gutenberg is inventing something called the printing press, the Jews in Spain, with a very intellectual culture, uh, with a certain yeshivishness that they're reviving over there, are going to jump with both feet into it. And Iberia, Castile and Aragon, and Portugal to a degree, will be an a, 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 uh, area of Jewish population in which there will be a demand and a thirst for Jewish books. And so you'll find the earliest Gemaras, the earliest uh, Haskalah books, shall we call them that way, the earliest Sidurim, are published actually in Spain, in Iberia. It's interesting, by Jews on the edge of destruction. Now, shortly before, they're going to be kicked out, and uh, uh, what's very famous is, it's very hard to get a, one, a hold of one of these old copies. You can imagine how rare they are. It's Gemara Rashi Ramban, and not Gemara Rashi Tosos, because Tosafot, as we'll see, is an Ashkenazic phenomenon. And if you're Spanish, uh, the, the way that the whole Tosafistic tradition entered Spain was through the medium of the Ramban. And so... It's funny, but uh, it's only funny because of our these are just cultural uh, uh, accidents that happen, and uh, they did it their way. But uh, there's a big demand for it among the Spanish Jews, and uh, there's a very uh, small but active, and, and I shouldn't say small, active uh, press, a series of presses operating in Guadalajara and all kinds of crazy places. One of the very interesting things is that as soon as the Jews find out that they can publish books, Kiruv, Where's the Kiruv? Muranos. All the Muranos are cousins. If you're Spanish, uh, you know who your great-great-grandparents were, and you know that this guy who lives in such a place now is a Catholic, Nebuch, because, I say Nebuch because the great-grandfather was in the wrong place at the wrong time in 1392 or sometime like that and was forced to convert. It's my cousin. And uh, one of the things you want to do if you're Jewish at that time is uh, try to say, Hey, really, you're Jewish. And so, uh, <laughs> like a missionary would do today, he, for the birthday, for Christmas, you give him a sitter. You understand? Or a machzer. Or a chumash. Or, or maybe a copy of Kimchi's or a uh, diktuk book, or things like that. Uh, no, just, just uh, <laughs> if you ever care to open it up, you understand what I'm saying. And there is a uh, certain. Uh, Let's put it this way. There's a certain receptiveness, at least among some. Enough that uh, the church freaks out. And if you take the trouble to read 
and you can get online the actual decree of expulsion from Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492, where it states the reasons that they're kicking the Jews out. One of them is they're printing these books. They're, they don't use the word kiruv. They're bringing these works as missionaries, as undermining the true Catholic faith, as a cancer, and therefore we've got to get the Jews out of here to remove their nefarious presence to save the Jews who are already converted from relapsing into Judaism as these damn books. And so you see the double-edged sword of the printing press. Who knows? Maybe the printing press hadn't been invented and they hadn't gone to this. Maybe the Jews, the, the, the Spanish sovereigns would not have been provoked into this measure. Probably they would have. But it goes to show you what I'm trying to get over here, which is the funny interplay between the story of books, which is usually boring, you think, and the story of life, which isn't so boring. Um, the Spanish Inquisition, I can tell you, which is set up not long before 1492, makes it a policy, especially after 1492, to go after all Jewish books and destroy them. Um, I will go farther than that. Anyone who's ever been in Spain, and I took a group there two Januarys ago, will know they did a darn good job, and they did a job, of removing any Jewish presence so there were no cemeteries, for example. That's right, they were, no, they, they were nothing left over. And it's very Spanish to come to a place and say, what's this? It used to be a mosque, and then it was taken over by a church, then the Moors took it over and made it a mosque again, and then it captured again by a church, and now we uh, got rid of this part of that part. Um, when we went to Toledo, Toledo, so uh, where is the famous Jewish community? Oh, they're buried there. Where is there? Oh, there's a big church on top of it. They build a cathedral on top of the cemetery. That's, that's how you do it. So, um, you know, Jewish books are not going to have a great luck. It's, it's not going to be easy to find. Uh, you can imagine how rare it is to find in Canabula, which is what I mean, books published before 1500, uh, from Spain, although there are, four, there are a few. And if you really care about this, you can go online. Uh, it was hard for us to reproduce re, re, uh, it effectively on the screen tonight. But their whole site's YU, for example, has a, a whole thing that they did a couple years ago in the history of the Talmud, and they did uh, you know, photos of, of old editions. And it's interesting if you're into that sort of thing. Um, all I can tell you is that just as there are no Jews that survived in Spain as Jews, formally, after 1492, there are almost no Jewish books. Um, so once again, the fate of the book is very similar to the fate of the, of the people. So our scene now has to then change to here, to Renaissance Italy, because that's where all the action is going to happen. As you can see, Italy is not a country. It's a series of states. I understand it's a peninsula. I get it, and I know they all talk Italian. But even till today, if you study Italy closely, and not just superficially, you'll find uh, in the history of Italy that they never really united, as we would understand the term uniting in American history terms. What happened was that uh, this kingdom eventually conquered all the others and called it Italy in 1860. But uh, any Italian today really says, I'm a Florentine, or I'm a Venetian, you know what I mean? Or I'm, I'm from the Romagna or whatever. Very, a lot of it's local business. And in those days, Italy, as you can see, was a bunch of different states, and uh, there are Jews scattered all throughout these places. Uh, very tiny communities, as I mentioned before, usually one or two or three or four or five Jewish families, period. Um, only a few communities have anything substantial. And that's how it went. Uh, the influence of the Catholic Church in Italy, obvious. Um, is that good or bad? It's not good. On the other hand, it's not Spain. And so what's going to happen in Italy is the most unexpected sorts of things. Now, this is not just Italy, but it's Italy in 1494, and others in the Renaissance. What do we mean by the term 
Renaissance, uh, other than the literal translation of rebirth. It's a fancy term that historians about 100 years ago, 150 years ago, came up with, secular historians, to try to uh, celebrate the fact that in Italy and then elsewhere, there, for the first time in many centuries, started to be an interest in the secular, not only in the religious. Now, I didn't say that they were uninterested in the religious, because everybody's still Catholic and staunchly Catholic in the 1400s. But whereas prior to that, it used to be that religion was the totality of all culture, like in an ultra-Orthodox context today. There should be nothing out there that's not connected to from. Uh, music should be from, uh, dancing should be from, uh, books, of course, should be from, uh, leisure should be from, you know, everything should be with a from context. That's a medieval attitude. And in the Middle Ages, the uh, Christians were certainly able to enforce this. It's called the Catholic Church, and that's how it was. And then, so, like, if you went to a very super from person today, you say, I guess, I read the New York Times. Why do you read the New York Times? You say, well, is it also reading the New York Times? That's not the point. Why are you reading the New York Times? You should be reading something uh, from... That, no, that's exactly the attitude that prevailed throughout the Middle Ages for the most part in Europe until the 1400s, the late 13 and 1400s, when all of a sudden they say like this, it's not just the New York Times. You know, no, I'm not, I'm not becoming a Chal Shabbos. You see? Or a Catholic would say like this, it's nothing wrong with reading Aristotle or uh, the histories of Herodotus. I mean, what's wrong with reading about the ancient kings of Persia or the Plutarch's uh, lives comparing the Greek and the Romans? I mean, I'm not going to become Julius Caesar again. And everybody knew that there's not going to be a reversion to ancient, uh, you know, idol worship, even though Italy is chock full of idols. But that's not what's going to happen. They're not going to become pagans as they were once again. And so the idea arose very slowly and surely, very slowly, and not without controversy, that it's okay to devote some of your time, not all of your time, some of your time to things that are not strictly uh, religious, strictly not strictly uh, Christian. Uh, you should definitely be Christian, but... It's okay to have a little other stuff, as long as it's not a real challenge to the religion. And the way it was felt was ancient Greece and Rome and that kind of stuff, not a challenge to religion. It's all dead. It happened a long time ago. And there are many pieces of Chochmah that we can pick up by reading, for example, the ancient histories of the Romans and the Greeks, uh, or the oratories of Cicero, or the poems of uh, you know, Homer or, or Ovid or something like that. It, it's it's niche to him, niche there. It's not religious, not non-religious. It's just a separate thing called secular. And when this happened, uh, it meant that we're, I always like to say that if you look at me at this moment, all culture was very close. And then the Renaissance, it opens up a little bit. But still quite close, but it opens a little bit. And then afterwards, it opens up more and happens more until we get to our today where just, you know, the religious part fell down and all you have left over is the secular. That's called Western civilization in one second. Now, um... But, but for our purposes, this is very important because it meant that new feelings arose first in Italy and spread elsewhere, uh, usually what are called humanism. Humanism means that uh, you're primarily interested in man. I believe in God, but he's up there. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about people. If you're interested, for example, in history, history's not about God, it's about people. True or not? Um, history about cause and, cause and effect. Is it, why did Hitler do this? Why did the Civil War start in America? How did people interact with each other? Show me the wonderful things that the human race is capable of, and now show me the opposite. And you can, if you know history, right? So it's all humanistic. It's all about talking about the human being. You see, where's God in all this? The historian, so to speak, or the artist, 
We're the scientists. We're the poet. It's not really focusing on God. In the old days, that is what they focused on. Right? Art, religion, dancing, everything is all about God. If you're Christian, you have a lot to talk about in that department. Um, and now, it comes to Renaissance. So what about man? What about people? Uh, the human being is a fascinating kind of thing. It's, it's weird, but it's very fascinating. And so, what it meant was that there's, uh, I won't say a revival, because there hadn't been a revival for there to be a revival, but there, for the first time, uh, you find intellectuals arising in Italy and then later elsewhere who are interested in many interesting things of long-dead civilizations because maybe there's Chachm out there that, they, that can inform us today. Especially, for example, the classical languages, which is Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Why are they classical languages? What about Chinese and, and, and Indian? That's out of their frame of reference. But everybody knows that the Greeks long ago, we may not be into that, had all this Chachmah. Uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Romans, of course, had all this Chachmah, and that's Latin. Even the church kept up a certain type of Latin in the Middle Ages. Latin was the language of the intellectuals, such as it was in the medieval period. And the Old Testament, we can't help it, is written in Hebrew. And so God must have spoken in Hebrew. I don't know why, but he must have spoken in Hebrew. And therefore, that's also a very important language to learn if you want to get to the roots of your civilization. And for the first time, we find people being interested in that. Obviously, the interest in Hebrew, among other things, is not going to be uh, without coincidental value coming at the same time as the development of the printing press. You see? Um, Chinese, Hindu, Islamic cultures are also going to be studied for the first time, because people want to know about the world. It's interest in humanism, the world in which human beings live. It's not in, in investigation of heaven. That's in the Middle Ages. It's called metaphysics. What are the different departments of heaven and hell? Look for Dante's Inferno. Where did Tzadikim end up? Where did Rishonim end up? And all that sort of thing. That's fine. But, but where do we live? How many different colors people are? It's, it's, it's white? It's black? What else is there? It's yellow? What else is there? You see what I'm saying? They want to find out about all that sort of thing. Um, there even develops what they call the Republic of Letters, which means you have different writers, intellectuals in different countries in Europe, and they all correspond with each other, usually in Latin, over several hundred years. And it doesn't matter what country you're actually from, whether you're German or Englishman or French or Italian or anything like that. Uh, you're, you belong to a common a European intellectual culture, which is usually conducted in the common language of Latin, and nothing is unimportant about nature and people, and you know, you want, like I say before, what's the original language of the Bible, and somebody can write about Greek, and another guy in another country will write back to him about the uh, Chinese, and another will say, I've, they just found something old in Egypt, and has to relate to what we have today, is that prove or disprove what someone else said? You never had this before, and now you start to get this sort of business. Um, the two, now by the way, the old church wasn't asleep either. The two faces of Italian culture in the Renaissance, are, uh, first of all, uh, Lorenzo uh, de Medici, the Medici family, talking about many very famous, who the rulers, the bosses, let's say, the political bosses, as we would say in Baltimore, the Jack Pollocks of Florence, and that's what they were, and uh, he represents the new culture, and everything I just said before, not so interested in, he's a Catholic, of course, but that's not the Icar. The Icar is the new, he's the patron of Michelangelo and people like that, and, uh, you know, the new style of architecture, the new uh, the painting and sculpture and all the other sorts of things, the new books and translating ancient, uh, you know, getting manuscripts of ancient Greek stuff and getting them printed now in a nice print, all the rest of it. Uh, 
high-class parties, which are not characterized by Catholic religious sermons. Leave it at that. And uh, that's and, and he's El Magnifico. You understand? He's Lorenzo the Magnificent, Father Cosimo. Uh, these are the high-class, very open and pretty secular for that time uh, Italian uh, noblemen and, and elite figures. And then you have his opponent, Savonarola. <laughs> we were just in Florence. If you go over here, only in Italy did he have a statue of a guy like that and think it's a hero. You understand? Savonarola was a Catholic priest who's the enemy of the Medici, and when he takes over in a revolution against them, they try to kill them, and he has, as I mentioned before, the bonfire of the vanities where all the women have to throw their, their jewelry and their makeup and everything out there because all vanity, you know, the men have to throw. Venice is a very gay city, so the men have to throw their jewelry and things like that also out there. I'm serious. And so, you know, it's all evil. He, he, well, he represents the, the, the Catholic side. You know, saying those the old religious, thing, which is at war, one with the other. It's very interesting to read. By the way, who eventually kills him? The Pope. It's just interesting. Now, um, so Italy is, as I say before, in a uh, kind of a, as Kochzech, as they say again, it's, you know, it's, it's very, um, what's the right word, uh, active and uh, boiling over kind of uh, culture in which new things are clashing with old and new ideas are clashing with old ones and the uh, culture is switching back and forth. I mentioned the Medici, the most famous of the Italian noble families. Even you've heard of all the Medici, I'm sure, for the first time. And... Um, the Medici, very f interesting, they're the, uh, the bosses of uh, Florence and eventually what they call the Grand Dukes of Tuscany over a course of time. Today, rulers of a certain part of Italy and big, big famous patrons of the arts and engagers in the kind of Italian politics that we'll talk about in a minute, associated with the Borgias and these other kinds of people, uh, it's good for the Jews. Uh, the Medici, being bankers, and that's who they were, they're Italians who started with small and built themselves up big. And once they got big, they want to hold on to the money. Therefore, they took over the political system indirectly to make sure that nobody takes their money away. Rather, they take other people's money away. And in that sort of thing, uh, any group that's associated with helping them out economically is good. Here's a very famous painting, Cosimo de Medici returning to Florence. He'd been kicked out by a local revolution. The poor didn't like him and all the rest of it. But eventually, he comes back. And when he comes back over here, it's celebrated in some painter that he paid. If you look over there in the back, you'll see one or two people with beards, and that's the Jews. <laughs> He's coming back with his uh, uh, orchestra and his flunkies and his employees and this and that, and his Jews. You see? And whenever the Medici are in power in Florence, the Jews are in Florence. When the Medici are kicked out of Florence, the Jews are kicked out of Florence. You understand? And so I say all this uh, you know, for a reason. By the way, uh, those are into Michelangelo. Well, no, Michelangelo was originally a Talmud of, uh, of uh, one who was a patronized by the Medici, and therefore there's all kind of interesting suggestions about him in the Sistine Chapel, that he's favorable to Judaism in various ways, because of indirect Medici kind of influence. Think of all this as we're going to be talking about Jewish books, because that's where I'm going with all this. Uh, then, of course, perhaps the most important part of the story is the popes at that time. My goodness. You could make ten movies, and they do. <laughs> about, the, about the popes and miniseries, and they do. About the popes at this time, because we run into a real cast of characters. This is the Borgia Pope, it's first Alexander VI, then it's uh, Julius II, his famous enemy, then it's Leo, and then it's uh, Clement VII. He and he are Medici. Hmm. Interesting. Think about what that's going to mean as far as the Jewish book is concerned. He and he, oh, we're certainly not Medici. They're enemies of Medici. This is the Borgia. 
Rodrigo Borgia, who, uh, as I said before, they really do make movies and miniseries and things like this about, which I'm sure are unmentionable. Um, and and uh, we're talking about a period in which the Catholic Church, the, the Vatican, let's get this straight, the Vatican is in a very interesting kind of flux, uh, going from absolute decadence, which I cannot discuss in the synagogue, to, to, to some worldliness. Uh, let's go to this little piece over here. Okay, it's, 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 this is from an old Hollywood picture from oh, when I was a kid. And uh, what you see over here is a typical day in Renaissance Italy. They're having a war. This is based on a true story. They're having a war, and uh, it's one army against the other, and they're attacking to capture Bologna. And you'll see, uh, riding through here uh, in a second, the, 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 the leading knight, the commander-in-chief of uh, one of the armies is killing everybody right and left and cutting his way through. That's the Pope. Okay, the famous Pope Julius II, who made the Sistine Chapel, that's who Michelangelo made the thing for. And he's a warrior Pope because, in Hanami, the Pope is supposed to be the Prince of Peace, but that's when he's in Shul, you know, that's when he's in church. In the, in, in the Renaissance time, in the good old days, he's a prince, in addition to being the head of the church, he's also a king, he's the king of the Papal States. And he wants more territory. And Julius II is very famous for, I mean, look at this, there's a whole battle going on, and he did this all the time that he was Pope. Uh, he, went, he went in there, uh, and he won most of the battles, by the way. Uh, eventually, he will capture the city, as you'll see in a second. And uh, he does take Bologna, and he, if you go there today, there's a giant statue uh, that he forced them to do. And then later on, they melted the statue down, made a cannon to shoot against them, and then he made another statue. Michelangelo, of course, made the statue. And a good time is had by all, you know. And we don't ordinarily think of a religious leader, uh, you know, looking like Sir Lancelot over here, okay? But nevertheless... Uh, it's true, and therefore I say the church was very much in an Olam Hazeh kind of mode, not so much an Olam Haba kind of mode during this period. Of course, now here he's, he's capturing the middle of the city, you'll see he'll take over, and then he'll bless the soldiers, because you know, once, they, once they finish killing everybody, you need absolution for having taken human life, but if you're a commander of the Pope, you can get absolution just like that, and uh, it's, not, it's not a bad job if you can get it. The, uh, the, the, the point is that it's not the regular church, it's the Renaissance church. And it's the Renaissance Church in the late 1400s, early 1500s, which has a very specific profile, and it's most unusual. And of course, uh, there you go. You see, uh, now he's going, and, and, and now they're going to <laughs> so much for that. And now, of course, you got to put on your talus, <laughs> right? And you make a shekhayanu. The point is, so, so, but this, but this is not untrue. In other words, you had Renaissance popes of, of, of this type. And uh, people knew that, yes, he's the head of the religion, but he's also the commander-in-chief of the army. You understand? Now, all that is quaint and piquant. The question for us is the eternal question that we always have here. But is it good for the Jews? <laughs> you all know the famous Babe Ruth story, right? The kid goes in, in, in Bronx in the 1920s, and he runs home until Bobby Zadie, Babe Ruth, just hit 60. And the Zadie says, what's that exactly? He says, Babe Ruth can get knocked. Number six, six, you know, I mean, number sixty, and the eighty so says what? He says, "Is this good for the Eden? Right? Is it good for the Jews?" The uh, the old the old line. Uh, the answer is yes. All these crazy popes, whatever else they did, whoever they poisoned, whatever armies they commanded, whatever wars they engaged in, but for their own reasons, turned out to be good for the Jews. You understand? Uh, it's, it's, it's it's very interesting over here. Uh, take take uh, the famous Borgia Pope, Rodrigo uh, Borgia, the Pope Alexander the Sixth 
who, as I said before, I can't even discuss <laughs> in a show. I couldn't even discuss outside of a show. So uh, it's, it is what it is. He lets the Jews who run away from Spain uh, move to, to Rome. No questions asked. He says to the Spanish, why are you so cruel in the Inquisition? You should cut that out. And the Spanish say, bug off. And he's Spanish. That's the crazy part of it. He's Spanish. And so why would someone who's beyond decadent and totally into himself uh, show a, a, a kind thing for the Jews? Very base. But uh, I know what his enemies say. He's a Jew. Of course. You understand? But, and in Spain, you never know. You know, if you go back far enough, who knows? But the point of the matter is, uh, in the Jewish history, he doesn't go down as a bad guy. Uh, we don't have the time to worry about the other stuff. We have to worry about, I mean, seriously, you're a refugee uh, from Valencia, from Granada. Uh, You've got to go somewhere. If you end up in the wrong place, they cut your throat. And then it turns out you can go to Rome. You can go to the Papal States. and can settle there. And even if you were once a Christian, is don't ask, don't tell. And you can engage in trade and you know, make, make a living. Hey, he's a saint. <laughs> You understand? I mean, Jewish history gives you an angle of vision which is not identical with that of others, perhaps. Um, his son is even more notorious than him, Caesar Borgia, Cesare Borgia. I'm sure there are a hundred movies about him. And, uh, and it, it's hard to outdo the father, but he gives the best shot. Uh, he is the patron, as we will see, of the Sansino Press. When they start to publish the Gemara, it's under his protection. Because if you know anything about Caesar Borgia, Yes, he was totally amoral, and he was totally this and totally that, but, it was, but his plans were to conquer each territory and then govern it efficiently and promote all interesting economic activity, including anything that brings the money to the exchequer. So therefore, he's, he's as I said, Gershon Sensino, the number one printer that we'll talk about in a minute, is under the protection of the... It's funny that the Gomorrahs at that time were dedicated to Caesar Borgia, but they are. And once again, I say, it's so Babe Ruth. Um, the, 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 pope, the Pope after him, as we just said before, his mortal enemy, enemy De Rovere, from the famous Julius II. He only grows this beard, uh, really didn't have a beard, he only grew the beard when he had a war against the Venetians and the French. And he's Fuari Barbari, out with the barbarians, chased him out of Italy, and he led him all these bloody battles. And since he didn't win the first battle, he says, I'm not going to shave until I've succeeded in kicking the enemy out of Italy. And this is a sign of his martial nature. And we just saw before for that movie, but he said he was pretty militant and military. Uh, he's got a Jewish doctor. Uh, he's got all... Listen, you can just imagine what kind of illnesses this guy suffers from. And the Jewish guy and his Jewish doctor is, is, is pretty successful. I don't know how they did it with 16th century medicine, but he's pretty successful. And therefore, as far as Jewish is concerned, leave the Jews the heck alone. You know what I'm saying? My doctor is so-and-so, and he does a good job for me, and leave him the heck alone. And you want to know something? You're a refugee, and you're in Rome, or you're a Jew in uh, Fano, or Milano, and all. You don't care about it. You, you care about bottom line. And so, thank God for that. Um, the next two popes, as I said before, he's the son of Lorenzo de' Medici, and there's a cousin. So, we already saw the Medici are by definition tight with the Jews. So, it's a period of history, 40 years, 50 years, something like that, uh, in which is a perfect storm in the sense that things come together in a good way, uh, as far as the Jews are concerned. And uh, the bottom line is, um, it's more of a tolerant atmosphere vis-a-vis the Jews, especially if you're such a patron of the arts, the, the grandson of Cosimo de' Medici, Leo X, the son of Lorenzo de' Medici, 
Uh, this guy's born in, and saturated from day one with the Michelangelo's and the rent. I mean, these are the guys that work for the family. You understand? That's the hired help. That they, meaning, every time they have a birthday, they'll make a painting and a sculpture and a palace and all this sort of thing. You got the cream of the talent over there uh, working in there, the poets, the artists, and all this. So he's totally saturating culture. She's not going to be a regular Catholic. Let's go to the next one. It's very famous. Okay, the Pope Leo X, although Catholic historians say it's apocryphal and it's never able to know. But at the end of the day, Pietro Bembo, his uh, historian, says he sits down at the end of the day with a glass of wine and he's talking to a friend. And he said, well, we all know how, how profitable this fable of Christ has been to us. And you understand, as, as the worldly, uh, <laughs> this is a guy that is, uh, this is a guy at the end of the day, first of all, also as a Jewish doctor, uh, several, um, and he can unwind with them. Um, as, far as, I'm as far as I know, this is the source. One of the things I like to do is uh, the origin of jokes. Because historically, you heard it like this way. Really, we said 100, 200 years ago in a different context. So as far as I can tell, it was uh, Leo X and his uh, Jewish uh, doctor, I forget what the guy's name was, where he had the famous line and where he offers them uh, a glass of wine. And the doctor says, oh, I don't drink, you know, uh, and Leo X says, uh, my dear friend, when will you and I be able, to, I mean, this is a little ridiculous, your religion, when will you and I be able to, to it Italians after all, when will you and I be able to enjoy a glass of vino together, and he says, at your, at your wedding. <laughs> so the point is, I've heard it said over in many ways at different times and places, but I think that's the reason, and let's put it this way, there's no other pope that would be shy to even say this, correct? You have to be talking about the Renaissance and all this. Now, we Jews can view this as a kind of a helpful decadence. Obviously, if you're a young priest visiting from Germany, Rome, during the time of Leo X, it's a horrible decadence. It's the horror of Babylon, and that don't be surprised if this guy will come back from uh, Rome and say, the heck with this. This is not the, the true Christianity. This is a Vodazora. It's a playboy city. It's decadence and therefore should be overturned, and that's one of the main origins of the Protestant Reformation. It didn't help them much, so when Martin Luther, as a priest, visits uh, Rome, he sees all this sort of thing. Okay, so the scene is set, as you say, for a highly unusual set of decades in uh, history in general, and in Jewish history in particular, and as I mentioned before, the main names that are going to be um, interesting to us here be the Sancino family. Now, Sancino is Sancino. Sancino is the name of a small town, not too far away from Milan, you know, south near Pavia. And I don't even know if it exists anymore. And it's really a uh, Jewish family from Germany, Ashkenaz. Uh, you always got to watch out, you know, who were you before you changed your name to this? We all know that. And in Italy, it's particularly true. And uh, a certain family moves, as Ashkenazic Jews do move to Italy. It's a surprise to many people, if they study Italy or they visit Italy, to find that there's a very heavy Ashkenazic presence there, which predates the Sephardim. And this is funny, in many places it predates the Italiani. You understand? If you're talking about northern Italy, uh, places like Verona and Padua and places like that, Milano, of course, and things like this, you're surprised to hear that the first Jewish communities, I'm not talking about the ancient times, I'm talking the last thousand years, the first Jews that come there are from Germany. They're invited in to be these loan bankers, these small mortgage guys, and they're already living there in, in Jewish communities way before 1492, and way before even the Italian Jews move up there from Rome. And so it's not some recent foreign kind of thing in Italy. They've been there longer than anyone else. And here's an example of this. You're going to the 1400s. 
You're having a family that uh, descended from some of the German balitosis. They have yichas. All the Ashkenazi Jews have yichas. And they move down into uh, North Italy, and they end up in the, uh, near, near Milano, and the, uh, the Duke of Milan, and it gives them certain privileges. And one of the things they do after 1453 is they say, here's a new technology. Maybe we can make a bucket this, both in terms of publishing uh, European works in European languages and Jewish works in Hebrew. See? And therefore, they found the, uh, they take the name Sansino, and then they move around from town to town over the course of the late 14, early 1500s. And wherever they do, they set up a printing press. And the local town, if they're smart, will encourage them because here's a guy coming in with what we call today investment capital, right? He's coming in and he's going to set up a business which, if it goes, will hire people, will it not? You're going to have to, besides the specialists that are going to run the press, obviously if you're going to run a European press, a Geisha press, so you're definitely, all the people that are doing the setting and the carving and all the rest of it are going to be Christians, so they're definitely getting employment. And even if you're running a Jewish one, there's the secondary kind of stuff. You know what I mean? No, you're renting a, a building and you're hiring extra help and all this sort of... It's just a plus for the economy. It's the opposite of a minus for the economy. And so this town or that town or the other one will let them in and try to build it over here. Italy, in the late 1400s, becomes the place in the world for the highest class of uh, public uh, publications. I'm talking about physically and in terms of the quality of the literature produced. Um, the most famous name, not famous to you, but it will be now, the most famous name associated with that is this guy over here, uh, Aldous Minutius, where, uh, Aldous Minutio, uh, who, who eventually ends up in Venice, and he publishes the kind of books that in those days a per person makes a fortune for. The books are still not so common, and it's the best paper. It's the best binding. The ink is the best. You know what I'm talking about. All that sort of, so, so it's actually a work of art. Now, you and I live in a mass production age and all the rest, so we don't really have this. But it's the closest thing you could have to a medieval manuscript in which the, the book itself, besides the contents of the book, the book itself is, is literally a work of art. People look at it, it with admiration and for the artistry and the craftsmanship that went into this. And uh, as I said before, Aldous Minutius eventually does this in Venice. He becomes the publisher of the Greek classics in Venice. He invents the Octavo, the small book you know, they can do among the public all high class, all expensive, of course. Um, he publishes the Greek classics. It's a classy thing. It's not so common yet as it will come later on. A book is a book. Uh, it's still somewhat rare, uh, although I'm becoming less rare all the time. And it's something that you not only use, it's a source of pride. The person in the Middle Ages, um, excuse me, in the Renaissance, the Italian owner will come in and he looks at his 20, 30 books and it's the way you would show off, uh, you know, jewelry or something like that uh, today. Gershon Sonsino, he's the one, it was, it's an uncle and then a grandson, it's like three generations worth. The main guy was uh, Yoshua and Yisrael Nassim and Gershon. As you can tell by the names, they're Ashkenazic Jews. He wants to be the Jewish uh, Aldous Minutius. Actually, the two of them were, were business rivals. And uh, you'll see in a minute that had, <coughs> had um, consequences. But he wants to do, because he's a Yiddish Yid. He also wants to make a buck. He's a Yiddish Yid. And so one of the things he wants to do is like this. They're publishing the Greek classics of Aristotle and Homer, and this one publishing the Latin classics of uh, you know, Virgil and uh, Horace and all that. Where's the Hebrew classics? I mean the Torah. I mean the Gemara. I mean all the stuff that goes in there. The Rishonim, all, all the Jewish stuff. Um, and I want to do that, and I want my stuff to go around the world, 
And in the same way, I want the best Hebrew fonts. I want the best artisans to craft the olive. Let's invent a new olive and a new base. I mean it. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the, in, in the period we're talking about, it's not computerized yet, it's physical printing. Who makes the letters? What do the letters look like? Aldous Minutius is famous for many things. One of the things, being Italian, one of the things he invents is something called italics. Uh, well, you know, to, to emphasize things as, as we use them today. That's his idea, okay? Uh, among a hundred others. And uh, Gershon says, he wants to do that for the, for the Jewish stuff. And so the result is, um, he's, he, he's very interested in publishing the Talmud. What about the fact that the Pope said you can't do that? And all? That was hundreds of years ago. If you keep your mouth shut and don't make too big of a deal of it and just publish among the Jewish communities and make a profit, then everything should be okay. Um, don't talk about the Jesus part, don't talk about the other parts, just do it. And that's what he does. Um, wherever he goes, he makes it his business to get friendly, as he has to, with the cardinal and the, the so-and-so's brother and this one's cousin and all the, all the uh, uh, you know, influential Italians. But he does do it. And so the Sansinos start to publish significant works. Most importantly, they publish many, but not all, of the tractates of the Talmud. He's the guy that makes... No, we don't have a picture of him, unfortunately. He's the guy that makes Tosfos Tosfos. Uh, the Tosafos go back to the 1100s. Rashi died in 1106. His grandchildren and their successors after him, as I'm sure many know, continued the intellectual project of commenting on the Talmud and all that sort of thing for another, until they're closed down by the burning of the Talmud. So let's say, for argument's sake, from 1110 to 1250 or so, 150 years more or less. Um, I'll say it again, they didn't want to close on their own, the Catholic Church closed them down, with what we talked about before. Uh, Tosa was a very interesting phenomenon. Um, the first ones, like Rabbeinu Tom, didn't write anything, as far as we can tell, or, or very little. It was their student, the Re, the Rizik of Dampierre, who seems to be the one who wrote all that down. But then, it was not a book culture, it was manuscript. And so he had Talmudim, and his main student was somebody called the Rojbo. Not the Rajba, but the Rajba. The Rajba, Shlomo Ben Adri from Spain. The Rajba, Shimshim Ben Adri from Sant, from France. And so, uh, I know it's confusing. The, uh, welcome to my world. The, <laughs> the, the, the fact is that um, he had a student, Shimshim Ben Adri, who uh, publishes, when I say publishes, he writes, and they make copies, of a very full uh, Tosafos, you know, explaining things in great detail and very, they're very nice. But uh, it was too big and too unwieldy. And so eventually, if you're following me, it's Rebbeinu Tam, and then it's the Riyaz, and then it's the Rajbah, and then it's one of his students, uh, Tosus Tuch, as they call it in, in Hebrew, Rebbeinu of Tuch. Tuch is a small town, smaller than small, in Normandy, <laughs> all the way up in north, uh, western France, not far from D-Day, you know. And uh, so it's a little nothing town, and I don't know who he was. We didn't know much about what he was, except that he wrote a somewhat smaller version of uh, the Tosavot. Uh, in his Tosavos, he mentions this person, as, as they do, the Tosavos talk about each other, it's Ashkenazi culture, they mention dead people, live people, all the rest of it. One of the people he mentions is an ancestor, great-great-grandfather of Sansino, or Moshe Spire. Okay? So he said, I guess, that's the one that's going in the Gemara. I want my Zadie in there. And so uh, what happens is, that uh, Gershon Sonsino goes to France, he writes this. He goes to France. Uh, the Jews have already been kicked out of France. But it's very interesting, and people don't notice, unless you are a specialist in Italy or visit there at least, that uh, French Jews 
uh, emigrated, among other places, to Italy, specifically in North Italy. Um, when we were in Venice, I guess, again, in, not long ago, in, in May, so there's, a little, there's only one or two shows operating, but there used to be nine or ten or twelve. And uh, they're taking a little, uh, some of you may have been there and done this, taking a little uh, synagogue uh, tour uh, we did on Friday afternoon, very quickly to a couple of shows which are no longer existing. They're very beautiful, but they're not operating in shows anymore. And one of them is a French synagogue. You understand what I'm saying? It's Nusach Tsarfas. So it's Ashkenazic, but it's not German. It's like a little freaky. And they go back to like Machter Vitri and all this sort of thing. It's, it's a certain version of the Ashkenazic tradition. And there in France, they preserve this old Tosfos. And this guy Sansino goes and uh, on a business trip and he gets the manuscripts and he brings them back and he publishes them in the form that have become immortal down till today, which is the Gemara in the middle, Rashi on one side and the Tosafot on the other side, this particular version of the Tosafot. Right? The Tosafot's Tuch. Uh, is it better? Tuch, really. Is it better than uh, one or the other? Not really, but that's the one that got in there. And so um, I'm always laughing because, yeah, they're angry. Stein's also of people like this. You change the tourist Adolf and all the rest of it. Tourist Adolf was put together by some businessmen in Italy in the late 1400s uh, as part of uh, executive decisions in running their business to, 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 to publish uh, Hebrew books. It's not like the Ramah or somebody like this where a bunch of rabbis got together and in council assembled said this is what the Gemara shall look like. It was a business thing, right? And uh, if it would have been a Sephardi guy that got into all this, it would, it would be somebody other than Tosavos on the page. It would be the Ramban or whatever. But such is the fate of, of Jewish books. It's kind of interesting over there. And... Um, the result is that uh, his Zadie does get into that, I might say, and uh, he publishes many of the copies of the Gemara, and he sets the standard for what others will follow afterwards. When later on in Italy, they'll publish the entire Talmud and all the rest of it, they follow his, his model. Um, he does many books. It's Chumashim, it's Sidurim, of course, Italian Sidurim, Ashkenaz Sidurim, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, commentaries on the Bible, of course. And the whole gamut of what we would call Hebrew Moschilic literature, as that term would be understood in the Middle Ages. You understand? In other words, it doesn't have to be books about Torah. There are a lot of Jewish books that came out in the Middle Ages. They get published in Italy by Sansino and his successors, which are uh, books of poetry, uh, philosophy, joke books, believe it or not, uh, things like that, uh, music books, all kind of little tchotchkes of this type, uh, spurious ones, not spurious ones. The most famous and notorious, he publishes the poems of Emmanuel of Rome. Uh, which is interesting. Emmanuel of Rome well, lived in the 1200s, early 1300s. He's a poet uh, living in Rome. He's Jewish. He's 50% Yehuda Levi, as I always like to say, and 50% Casanova. You understand? So half of his poems are along the lines of Yehuda Levi, but the other 50% are along the lines of Casanova. So it's interesting that they would publish this Rabbi Yosef Karo in the Shulchan Aruch. And it goes out of his way to specifically mention and condemn this book in Hilchah Shabbos, if you take a look at it, I think in Shin Vav, he says, history books should not be read on Shabbos, and Machbros Immanuel, the printers are going to hell. He says these words, you understand? Those who bring them to the base of the Fus. So he knows it now. Of course, Rabbi Yosef is not Italian. He's a Sephardic. He's living in Eretz He's living in Tzvaz. It's a different thing altogether. He's living in the 1500s. So obviously the culture gap is kind of large over there. Uh, aren't too many Jewish books that have that distinction to be mentioned by name. But, uh, but there you have it. And why would somebody publish books of a Casanova if he's also publishing books by the Rambam? Or the Ramban, or somebody like that, or the Gemara itself, or the, the, you know, uh, the Medrash? Welcome to Italy, my friends. <laughs> this, this, this is how it goes. 
And uh, I hope to speak about this, the Shabbos, and we're talking somewhere about this. Uh, so the result is that it's sort of like Zer Luma Zer. In the face of all the terrible political catastrophes that befall the Jews all across the European continent, and I just told you before they did, at the same time, in funny ways, specifically in Italy, there's an art scroll revolution. And there is. Now, you can smirk about it, and I understand that, but fact of the matter is, you and I are living through, if you're honest, an art scroll revolution, whether you like it or not. Okay? Um, the Gemara itself has been opened up in a way that has never existed before. And to people who could never think of trying to access it. It's just a fact. If you're in Israel, you're talking about or whatever, no, these phenomena never existed before. And it cannot fail to have the most far-reaching revolutionary uh, consequences, some of them foreseen and some not foreseen. That's how it goes with this sort of business. And uh, history will not be the same in Judaism and Jewish life that you have what you call the R-Scroll Revolution. Uh, this is, so to speak, the analog, the equivalent or whatever, back in the 1400s. Used to be, manuscripts are kind of rare. Even though I told you Jews were constantly copying, especially the women, constantly, constantly copying to keep up with the need and also to try to make up for what the guy were destroying. That's true. But you can't compare that to a guy who just puts one thing in and publishes 2,000 uh, copies over there. All of a sudden, there's a presence of Jewish texts and classic texts that never existed before within the reach of at least certain levels of the household. You can have a situation which didn't exist for a long time where a community, at least, might own a whole shas. Think about the fact that during the Middle Ages, such a thing was very rare. And usually people had to operate with one or two uh, volumes that's the best you had. Um, I can't overemphasize the importance of this for Torah culture. Uh, the effects on yeshivas are being studied as I speak by, uh, in other words, in the last 20 years, or so 25 years, by well-known historians and other people like that, there's a guy Reiner and so Toshima and others, that um, uh, studying the effect this has on the Torah culture, because just to give you, I don't want to get too much on a tangent on this, but just to give you one little idea of what I'm talking about. Here you are in Ashkenazi Yeshiva long ago. When you have the, so what do you know? You, your world consists of Rashi and Tosus and the other Ashkenazic stuff. And what about all the Sephardic and other, I don't know, I heard of the Rambam, maybe they have that, he's all unusual, but they never heard of all the other people. And if they did, they just all buy uh, rumor and, uh, you know, third person and fourth person. And so a whole bunch of ideas are just not available to the Ashkenazic rabbis and students uh, if you live in the 12, 13, 1400s. And then you have something called Italy and, and printing presses, and a guy who published a whole book by the Ramban and Baba Basra, which, believe it or not, is one of the very first books published uh, ever. And, uh, again, the Ramban and Baba Basra. And uh, all of a sudden, you could be in Poland or some far place, and here's something from the Spanish, and it's hitting you on, on, on your uh, front desk. And uh, it's a whole new world of ideas you never knew existed. You see? And so it promotes the internal cross-fertilization of Jewish thought among Jews, which cannot fail to have had a positive impact. Does that repair or make up for the uh, political... I'm not saying that, but it's interesting that both happen at the same time. You have a terrible time politically for the Jews, but it's a very fascinating time culturally for the Jews. I'm talking about in the Torah sense as well as in all the other Jewish cultural senses as well. A much wider availability of texts cannot help but change the nature of Jewish intellectual and even social history. And uh, again, we, the Art School Revolution today is doing that. Those who know what I'm talking about, know Hebrewbooks.com and things like that, 
where you press a button and all of a sudden a whole very rare safer you could never even imagine accessing is there on, on the internet. Uh, this will not change the nature of the intellectual discourse and thinking in, in this generation and certainly the next one. It certainly will, obviously. Um, the information revolution, I'll use a vulgar term, but, and none of you know what I'm talking about, but I'll use it anyway, Wikipedia. You understand? It'll, it, 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 it changes a lot. You understand? It should, it shouldn't, but it does. And so um, something of an equivalent of that is happening you know, in, in the early 1500s. Now, this guy, Gershon Sonsino, and this fellow over here, all this are rivals, because they both want to make money in the book business. I understand that. Uh, but Aldous is not Jewish. And therefore, uh, he can go to Venice. And uh, the Republic of Venice is a very interesting place. Again, uh, we were there not that long ago. Um, Venice. Let's go back. To, let's go to the map of Italy here for a second. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You see, there are a whole bunch of different states. Up here is an area called Venice. No, this is not just this city. This city conquered a whole Medina over here. Okay, this whole section of northeastern Italy is kind of large. In fact, it was so big, the Pope that we saw before went to war with them, Julius II, in the World League of Cambrai. Um, so, Venice is very interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a republic. It's not a kingdom. And it always was a republic. And they prided themselves in not having kings or anything like that and being a government of laws. And so Jews want to live in, in Venice. You understand? Why does a Jew want to live in Venice? A Jew needs law and order above everything else. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah. You cannot survive, literally, physically, in a world of lawlessness and uh, anarchy and things like that. Before everything else, you need law and order. Venice is an area which, except in the World League of Cambrai, I would say for a thousand years, and it's quite remarkable what I'm saying, for a very, very long time, it's no invasions. You see? With one exception. It's no invasions. It's stable. Uh, the Venetian government is tough on the Jews, but fair. You know, they make rules, and you know, if you abide by the rules, then the, the law will respect you, and if you have any complaints, you can take it to court, and you will get a hearing. It's, 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 it's a, considered a free area. Um, Venice, the cities that are conquered by Venice, the Jews in there consider themselves to be lucky to be under the Venetian Republic. You understand? Uh, again, we were not long ago in Padua. Maybe some of you have been there. A very famous Jewish city, which has a yeshiva lasting for a couple hundred years. I repeat, a couple hundred years. And um, you go there, and the ghetto is uh, small, uh, but not tiny. And it's a block away, two blocks away, from the police station. In other words, from the Podesta, which is the Venetian governor. And whenever you have, on rare occasions, uh, the college students, because it's, it's a university town, the universities get drunk and they start rioting and carrying on, the Jews immediately call uh, the Venetian governor and the cavalry comes out and it's put down there because there's no rioting. And so a Jew wants to live in the territory of Venice. We were uh, in, in Ferrara. Uh, maybe some of you have heard about it. Uh, nearby is Mantua. So what's the difference between one Italian town and the other? Seen one, seen them all. Not really, uh, because uh, the borderline runs near Ferrara. Did I say it right? Maybe it was Verona. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's Verona. Verona's in Venice, and 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 Mantua is not. That's how it goes. So one's inside Venice. The other one isn't. The other one's in what you call Milano. The one in Venice is law and order and and and, and peace and quiet. I didn't say it's perfect, but it's law and peace and quiet. Therefore, there are no invasions. Life goes on. Uh, Fifty miles away, whatever. Mantua, that's in what you call Lombardy in Milan, the opposite. Constant evasion, constant wars, the Jewish community is wiped out, 
as collateral damage and invasion armies. Just we saw the Pope before killing everybody. It happens all the time. And so it makes a big difference where you live. Okay, now with that in mind, you'll understand that all the publishers want to locate themselves in, in Venice. Because there will be the Republic, there will be uh, peace and quiet and security, and it can make business. Um, the non-Jewish guy wants to kick the Jewish guy out, and he does. Because the government in Venice is very anti-Semitic. I didn't say that they didn't allow Jews in there eventually, but they will tell you themselves, we hate Jews. We just allow them in for whatever reason we do. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, they recognized early on, in the early 1500s, that in Venice the economy is going down. Prior to the 1500s, Venice controlled all the commerce. After the 1500s, you have here Columbus and people like that. There's new types of commerce coming up, and Venice's trade is going to go down slowly but surely. So they're looking for other types of economic activity, like print, printing, that'll help out. And Venice is very smart. And all this, so like, I'm a guy, this is a guy should country, therefore kick the Jew out, and they do. And uh, Sancino has to relocate to the town of Fano, a very famous uh, Jewish little town, Menachem Azari de Fano. It's a very, many, many Jews have that name. And uh, the town of Fano will say, okay, the cardinal says, bring him in. Uh, like I said, we need the employment, we need the export money, uh, whatever works. And uh, so you see over here that uh, the economic benefits uh, have very interesting uh, uh, playouts because Venice wants the uh, economic benefit, but at that time the, the anti-Semitism is stronger and they say go with the other guy, um, with, the, with the person who's not Jewish. Venice at that time is torn between the pocketbook and the prayer book, as I always like to say. Eventually, with, I don't want to go into too many details, eventually the Jews will actually be find themselves forced to move into Venice, and at that point the Venetians will say, we don't want the Jews here, and they'll end up compromising by saying, live in a ghetto. You see? Which the Jews will take as a good deal. It's not what you think. Jews will take as a good deal. Um, meanwhile, the printing of the Talmud goes unnoticed in the Christian world. That's the funny part. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it didn't go unnoticed in the Christian world. Actually, there are two reactions to the fact that this guy, Sancino, was already starting to use the printing press to disseminate the Talmud. The Catholics have heard about the Talmud as being something bad. And so we find two reactions arising. One from um, a positive one, from a group called the Christian Hebraists. Okay? Like this guy, very famous in German culture, Reuchlin. Okay? Reuchlin. Uh, humanist means Latin, Greek, mathematics, a person who's interested in the sciences, very religious Catholic, but at the same time interested in all the new learning, and he's also interested in Hebrew. And he studies uh, Hebrew and becomes very good at it with the doctor of the emperor, because they all have a Jewish doctor. And eventually he moves to Italy, and he'll be tutored for a year or two uh, by a famous rabbi you've heard of, the Saforno, Avadia Saforno, who, uh, you, know, you got to make a buck, and he pays him, I think I mean, they said he pays him a gold dollar for each lesson, which means he paid him decent money. And uh, he's real, a guy like that's really interested in Ivrit. And therefore, he's not Jewish. He doesn't believe in Judaism. He rejects it, of course, and all the rest of it. But he has respect for the Hebrew culture as being of an ancient provenance. And it's something that should be studied the way you would study Chinese or something like that, except that for Christians, even more so, because as we all know, Jesus and everything he came out of originally was in Hebrew and coming out of a Jewish provenance. Um, it's also true that they're quite aware of how inaccurate the Catholic Bible is, the Vulgate. Because once you start to study Hebrew correctly, you see that Jerome, who made the translation Bible back in the 4th century, made a lot of mistakes. On the other and then, of course, you find guys like him, who's really weird, Pico de Mirandola, I know he's not a household name for most, but he was once upon a time, and he's a boy genius of the Renaissance. He dies at the age of 31, he writes books, he's very uh, hugely, I mean, he devours literature of all types, 
and he is interested in the origins of Christianity, which, of course, he's convinced can be found in the Zohar. Okay? So he's a Christian Kabbalist, and he will study with Jewish guys, and he will, once again, he's a Christian, he's not interested in becoming Jewish, all the rest of it, but a little bit like Pablo Christianity. If the Jews only knew in the Kabbalistic stuff lies the real mysteries, because a Kabbalist will always say like this, you dummies are interested in the superficial, rationalistic interpretation of Scripture. That's for babies. What's really going on over there? You understand? When Billum's donkey's talking, what does it really mean? You understand? And uh, you have guys like this floating around, and they say, gee, the Talmud's being published, maybe the Zohar will get published. It'll be easier texts for us to read, with or without tutors. That's a good thing. You understand? On the other hand, you get negative results from Mishumadim, like this guy, if you can see, only this uh, Johannes Pfefferkorn, that's a nice name, right? <laughs> Pfefferkorn, who was Jewish from Nuremberg, and he uh, was burglarized, and the Jewish community threw him in jail, and he says, I'm getting out of jail, I'm converting. And he does, and then he becomes like Nicholas Donin. It's exactly the same thing. He becomes like the guy we talked about before, goes straight to the Catholic Church and says, the Talmud is full of all these anti-Christian things, and all this should all be destroyed. If you want to get the Jews uh, out of being Jewish, burn their books. That's what he says. And he gets to a very important lady, Kunigunde, right? She's the sister of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, Max. And uh, she's the opposite of Blanche Castile. She's wicked. And, or, or rather, you can tell she's a very uh, religious uh, person. I mean, I mean that. And he convinced her, Jews are spawned of the devil, Talmud is spawned of the Jews. Therefore, she writes to her brother and says, you've got to get rid of stuff to save your mortal soul. Because she says to her brother Maximilian, you know and I know none of us is without sin. That's a nice way of putting it. Okay? Maximilian is, of course, a Renaissance prince, and everything goes along with that. And if you want to really get Olam Haba, do it by destroying all the Jewish books, specifically the Talmud, not to say for Torah, but the Talmud. And um, he, in 1509, Maximilian von Habsburg, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, issues a series of decrees, burn all the Gemars. Here we are back to the 1240s. Thank you very much. Right? Here we are back to the old days. And the Jews... So we've been through this before. They immediately go to the emperor and they complain. They said, this guy, Pfefferkorn, is a liar. He was a convicted burglar. How can you take his word for it? And all the rest of it. And by the way, we'll, we'll give you a present if you'll let this go. And all the rest of it. And, of course, the Pfefferkorn says, it's not me. It's not my problem. They say, you're an Amaris. You only came read the Gemara. How do you know what's inside of it? And he says, get any group of professors that you want. And they'll start, go through the Talmud and they'll tell you what I'm saying is true. Get Reichland. He's the number one Christian embraced. And they do. And to their shock, Reichlin defends the Talmud. He says, I don't believe in it, it's full of errors, but it's an ancient book and it shouldn't be burned. You understand? It's one of the most famous episodes in European intellectual history. Okay? And they read Augenspiel and Hanspiegel and this and they all kind of books back at each other and letters of obscure, obscure men, all in Latin. It's a glorious epoch in the history of humanism and uh, Reuchlin and his guys are defending them. Of course, Pfefferkorn and the Dominican monks say like this, he's on the payroll of the Jews, which was not true. So therefore, we get really angry about this because a person who values his intellectual honesty gets really ticked off if he's accused of taking a bribe. If he took the bribe, he's not so ticked off. And so uh, an intellectual battle royal for intellectual freedom rages for a decade in Germany, which ends up saving the Talmud and the swarm. Reuchlin is condemned by the Pope. Who's the Pope? It's Leo X. You know, he basically says, I've got to satisfy these rubes, you know, so we're going to declare you an error, but don't worry about it. <laughs> that's, that's basically what happens. And the result is that um, in Germany it's all raging, but in Italy, Sansino, the books are rolling off the press all during this uh, era over here. And then a Gentile 
from Antwerp, Daniel Bumberg, not Jewish, moves to Venice, and he goes in the Talmud business. He says, I can do better than these guys, and a lot of money can be made at it, and I want to outdo Sansin and put him out of business, and he does, because since he's a guy, he gets permission from the government of Venice. Sansin could not obtain, because Sansin is Jewish and not allowed to live in Venice. Bomberg is honest, he's well financed, he's a businessman, and most importantly, he goes to the top and he gets a heter, uh, a license from the Pope himself. Surprise, surprise, the Medici Pope, Leo X, to publish the Babylonian Talmud and all the other stuff in there. You can't touch him if he's got a letter from the Pope. Okay? Why does this guy give him a letter? Why not? <laughs> you know that? Which, which Pope are we talking about over here? You know what I'm saying? Why not? And uh, the result is that uh, he goes into major publishing mode, uh, backed by, the, uh, you know, by, by a corporation, investors, the government of Venice. He publishes Demichrist Godot's. He invents something called Demichrist Godot's. He says, let's get a Bible with the three classic commentaries, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and uh, Ramban, and um, this will become the Hebrew Bible, and that's what we all use today. Just the later printers added this one and that one, but it's in there. The first guy he gets to publish, Yaakov ben Adoniyahu, Writes a little introduction. I think the historians today are not sure whether he was a Meshuman or not. You see? Well, the, the publisher of the Talmud is a guy. You see? The people that he's using or whoever he's using. I mean, you understand? It's, it's mind boggling, but it happens. And so, uh, all kind of books come off. This was a sweet deal. We're coming to the end here. Uh, Bomberg was not Jewish. Venice benefited economically. Bomberg was interested in putting that quality work, and he does. It's high, I'm talking about high-quality technical work in terms of the paper and the ink and the fonts and all the rest of that sort of thing. The Jews are very happy with his product. It spreads all over the world. As long as Gentiles are making money, their business will not be disturbed. You understand what I'm saying? The economic interest. The result is a golden age of very high-quality Hebrew book publishing and a flowering of Jewish learning as a result. Italy is an important Machum Torah and a Machum of Chachmas Yisrael during the 16th century, first half anyway, as a result of this. Ironically, problems will arise, as we'll see next week, when Jews themselves are going to get in the act and compete with Gentiles. It's not so smart. Um, and so we have here a very gullist type phenomenon. Who gives us our books? People are not Jewish. It's what the Kabbalists call the Gullist Hashchina, if you know how it is. You know, it goes through them, all the brachas go through them. Uh, these guys invented the traditional pages of the Gemara that we talk about today, and we've made very sacred. Um, but it all hangs on a wheel, on a thread. It hangs on having two Medici popes back to back, more or less. Leo X and then Clement VII. Uh, after that, eventually they're going to die, and who's going to be the next pope? And what's going to happen when that happens? Uh, that will be continued next week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.